Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. I'm in England this week for stories on Euro 22, and I also visited Leeds United for an upcoming story. So subscribe now and help me continue doing cool stuff like this. That's grantwall.com. There's no interview in this episode. My apologies. I've been really busy reporting all week uh, here in England, but we do have Chris Whittingham here to break down the soccer news. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, Grant. And honestly, if I were trying to book a guest for a soccer podcast today, I would try and book someone who was at the Euro 22 women's <laughs> final. So we have Grant Wall here. Grant, did you have a nice time? I did. I just got back. Uh, I'm actually staying with Gabriel Marcotti from ESPN, who is a phenomenal human being uh, and terrific pundit. But uh, uh, yeah, really just a very cool event to be at, you know, and and I don't lose sight of the fact that I'm very lucky in uh, my career to have been able to go to a bunch of World Cups and World Cup finals and continental championships and league championships and all that stuff. And this was right up near the top in terms of experiences that I was glad to witness to be in Wembley and see England win a European championship, beating Germany, uh, deserving to win, I think in the end. And, um, just the, like, I don't want to give away the entirety of my story I'm writing for publishing on Monday, but this felt like 99 uh, in the United States did covering that women's world cup and how that became a transcend transcendent moment culturally, not just in sports, but in terms of what it symbolized, uh, what it heralded. And in the end, I think what it created and just the amount of cultural change that came out of it. And it's not a, a, an exact like for like comparison, but I, I did laugh because you know, I, Chloe Kelly celebrating her game-winning goal by doing a Brandy Chastain essentially, uh, and taking her shirt off uh, and and running around was pretty great because I, I had already sort of started pursuing this thought process earlier this week, and um, yeah, this country fell in love with their women's soccer team over the last month, and there were so many cool moments along the way, including some very good soccer, and. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a really cool thing to see happen, and I and I do wonder where this you know, where women's soccer in England goes from here, and how this changes things even globally. Uh, club investment it could be a complete game changer for the sport, which is really cool. I think so. What what, what were your views from watching the game? So I, my primary view of the game was this is an incredibly contested game, just in terms of. Yeah the sheer physicality of it. There was a ton of physicality in the play. I thought both teams at times struggled with the occasion, just in terms of trying to play what would I would presume be their normal way. And the occasion gets to them and the other team trying to put them off gets to them. There's so many storylines in the buildup. There was England striker situation. Ellen White starts again, but again, coming off the bench to score was Ella Toon, who's done that. I think they set a record in the European Championships for goal scored from the bench. Then you have Alexander Pop getting injured in the warm-up for Germany. That was a huge miss for them. And there was the game had such an emotional up and down. And this is going to sound weird, but in some ways, I really hope that the England fans were super stressed out by that. 
And what I mean by that is like what I've heard in the buildup was, well, you know, if the England men were in a final, I would be completely stressed out. I wouldn't be able to sleep. It's, you know, it's the end of my being. And in some ways, you know, supporting a women's team can sometimes feel like a free hit where it's, you know, ah, well, we've had fun. This has been a fun tournament. We've had a fun summer. But, you know, if they lose, it's not exactly the end of the world. And I kind of hope that by the end of that game, there are a bunch of England fans that were incredibly stressed out because in the first period of extra time, I thought Germany were going to eventually go on to win the game. They were the better team in that first period. And something happened in halftime of extra time. You rarely see this happen. You usually see at halftime of extra time, the game is going one way and it continues that way, or the game is going nowhere and we're heading to penalties. But something flipped in that second half of, of, of extra time. They get the goal and an incredibly professional killing off of the game as well, where you saw an England team just completely know how to handle that situation, handle a big occasion, which uh, I guess is probably cosmically hilarious given how England have handled big occasions on the men's side for 56 years since they won the World Cup. So uh, it was, like you said, uh, you feel something really big reading Susie Rack's game report and talking about how the scene was outside of the stadium, how in some ways... This was the culmination of people who have supported the women's game in England, which presumably has been going on longer than the last seven years. There are people who have put their blood, sweat, and tears to get anything going in this sport, in this country, and, then, and they now have a destination moment. You hope it challenges other big European nations to put even more into the women's game. You hope it drives women's football more in the day-to-day -day conversation in what is one of the biggest soccer-mad countries in the world. So, uh, so much to take from that occasion. Yeah. There really was. I, I saw Susie Rack and friends with her uh, before the game and, and had a good conversation with her just about what she was thinking and seeing. And, and I did tell her, I was like, you know, I hope you're not, um, you know, working so, so hard that uh, you're not sort of stepping back a little bit. And she's like, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm aware. Um, <laughs> but I would say this too. There was a collective sense of dread in that stadium uh, thinking this was going to penalties because you know, during extra time, there was just a really tense vibe where there were 87,000 people in there. That was a full stadium. I think the, the, the fact is that's the highest attended Euro game ever, men's or women's. Um, yeah, and I, I believe they impressive. said on the broadcast as well that it's the biggest crowd for an international tournament final since the 99 World Cup, which is, I guess, another bit of symmetry perhaps you can use in your piece. <laughs> Very good stuff. I like that. Um, and and so I do think you're right in that in the second half of extra time, England, something clicked and they started being dangerous again. But I still wasn't sure they were going to score anything. I thought we were going to penalties. And there's such a collective angst in this country of England about penalties. There's also a collective angst about Germany and what they do in the end. And so I do think it was a good thing for England that it did not go to penalties. <laughs> I just think that could have been a problem for them. But um, the subs, the depth, as you say, like for England, just so impressive to the point where you do start asking, should some of these players be starting? <laughs> but the game <laughs> changed the first time, I thought, when the subs came in um, in uh, Tune and Russo. And, you know, Ellen White, I'll take Russo over White any day of the week, to be honest. Um, but then again, you could also argue, you know, the two goals today were scored by subs for England. Um, 
you could argue that their coach, Serena Vigman, had, had it right. that Like, we want to be able to bring on quality players and really put teams away. And they did that several times in this tournament. And I thought it was also interesting. England had the same starting 11 in every game of the tournament. Wow. And you don't see that basically ever. Usually you're going to pick up card suspensions, injuries, all sorts, you know, form changes, all that stuff. And they really had a remarkable consistency throughout this tournament. So you look at the history of, of England's women's team and, and like for years and years, I always wonder like, why aren't they very good? You know, like they never got to a world cup semifinal until 2015, you know, and they got to the semis again in 2019. They had never won the Euro. They didn't even qualify for the world cup in 91 99, 2003. And so Andy Markovitz, who's been on this podcast, my friend, the professor at, at Michigan, has done some work on this and academic work and pointed out that like in the biggest men's soccer countries, women's soccer has had a much harder time breaking through than in the United States or in Scandinavian countries. But like England, Spain, Italy, Germany to an extent, definitely Brazil and Argentina. Um, women's soccer has had a really hard time getting through. And there's in England in particular over the years has been, there's still a lot of the men's soccer culture here, just very notorious, especially on social media now of denigrating the women's game. And I'm very curious to see where that goes from here. I hope it goes away. Yeah, I hope that a bunch of fans of European men's football enjoyed a summer tournament in which the women had it completely to themselves and they just got to enjoy an amazing tournament and a great occasion in which everything about it seemed big. The quality of the play seemed big, the size of the crowds in the final at least, and hopefully next time around if there's ever another women's Euros to be hosted in England, all the big clubs, men's clubs recognize Hey, we right. want to have that in our stadium. We want to have some big crowds because we know that the place can get filled if we have England in and hopefully other teams in. But I, I do sort of hope that this leads to that added influx of resources because the answer has always been right there. It's just interesting care. And unfortunately, women have kind of had to beg and plead for almost charity in a way. But I and and Kate Fagan, who hosts a great podcast in the in the metal arc universe called off the looking glass she's basically made the argument now that it's no longer about is there some charitable billionaire that wants to step up and you know give a a charity case to women i think now you can make a pretty cogent argument that there is economic opportunity in women's sports uh, when you look at the ratings for uh women's sporting events in this country certainly the women's euros in the uk drew enormous viewing figures uh, you, when you have 90,000 fans in, there's certainly an opportunity to make huge money on ticket sales. When you sell out a lot of the stadiums throughout these Euros, there's a lot of money to be made there. Sponsorship opportunities. This is now an economic opportunity for a lot of these clubs. And you'd have to imagine that now a lot of clubs, hopefully in England and, and in other places, will look at what happened here and see that it was really only... Chelsea, Arsenal, and Manchester City have been the big three in the Women's Super League. And today, Manchester United had a really big impact in some ways, while Manchester United have been playing a little bit of defense against their women's team. Not quite to the Liverpool level, but a little bit of defense against their women's team fully thriving. And 
maybe every single dollar doesn't have to go to funding the next transfer into your men's team. Because that really is, if you think about, for example, like what's happened this summer with Barcelona, it's every single dollar goes into, can we get a striker in that can score us 20 goals next season? Like that is the focus of every dollar at every big club in Europe. And maybe there can be a slight recalibration of those resources to where maybe for a 20th, a 30th of the price, you can go and find the best striker in the world for your women's team and grow it there and increase their their wages because it's deserved and grow the level of women's sports because the opportunity is there to grow fan bases, to grow in some ways, you know, there are a lot of Manchester United fans. Maybe that market is fairly tapped on the men's side. Maybe there's some women's fans to be found somewhere in the world and there are untapped economic potentials here. And so that is the hope, is that as big women's sporting moments happen, there is more of a chance that there is investment down other levels of the game. Totally agree with you on all of that. And I think what we're going to start seeing in the coming years, we're starting to see it a little bit now, is um, women's tournaments, women's competitions are going to be separating from the men's when it comes to selling the television rights when it comes to selling sponsorships when it's when it comes to not just having you know kind of like the women's world cup television rights have always just been a throw-in when somebody buys the rights for the men's world cup and whenever it has been the case that the women's sponsorships and rights have been broken off onto their own they end up making a lot more money moving forward and so you're going to see that, um, I think. And um, I think it's great. I think it's overdue. But you know, this country here, England, is going to be a place to watch. Where like, do they decide that they want to be far and away the best women's league in the world? Because they could if they wanted to. Um, if the investment is there, they're already sort of on their way toward that a little bit. Um. I will say, I don't think an English team has won the Women's Champions League in a long time. But, um, you know, so you've got that going on. Um, and I think the rivalry actually between England and the U.S. women's team, I, I hope that continues to grow because that was pretty fun in 2019 in seeing the the British tabloids like going after Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan <laughs> <laughs> for smack talk. Um, so there's just... And there's, and there's a Women's World Cup. We have two World Cups, Chris, by the way, happening in the next year, uh, which is pretty fantastic. Something to get very excited for. I also think this feels like the end of soccer summer to me. Like once yeah. the women's continental tournaments are done and once the the big men's domestic leagues start up again, Premier League next weekend, um, you know, it's it feels like a this is the end of a chapter right now. Yeah, it's it's the end of the summer. I, I don't know if you're you're planning a transition into uh, sort of the halfway house in the men's club calendar, but before we do, we have not spent any time on the first goal scored by England, and I would just like to for a moment. The ball <laughs> that was played by Kira Walsh for that yes. goal was absolutely incredible. I saw somebody on Twitter describe it as Route One. My friends, that is not Route 1. That is a perfectly placed pass directly into the run. And Ella Toon scoring in that situation with that particular finish 
looking at the goalkeeper and saying, I'm going to go for the chip here and nailing it to perfection. Sometimes you get fooled by the camera angle. Oh, is it going wide? Is it going too high? Flawlessly executed chip. <laughs> it's it's past goal. And if only goals were that simple sometimes. But that was as flawless of a move as you will see to score a goal in a major final. And I guess it's sort of, you know, from an English point of view, yeah, you have that really cool moment. You have the Brandy Chastain moment of Chloe Kelly ripping her shirt off, and that's really cool. Kind of a crap goal, unfortunately. Uh, but, I mean, they don't care. They don't care. They scored a goal in a, to, to win a European final. But uh, you have that moment on the back end, but to, to, a goal deserving of winning a major tournament, that first one absolutely was. To be fair, Germany's response is very good as well. Lovely, lovely bit of play down the, down the right wing. Uh, but that that first goal, it's just one of those where I just feel like I'm going to be bored one day in 10 days' time and like, like, let me watch that goal again. Like, it was that good of a goal. Yeah, great point. I, I mean, just a, a pass from deep midfield, but perfect pass. And I thought the, the shot when she hit it was going to go over the bar. Mm-hmm. And it just barely dipped in time and got under the bar. Just phenomenal finish. And yeah, the whole the way the play was set up and you're right the germany goal was actually very well orchestrated as well there were a lot of stoppages in play because of the physical nature of the game and the the first england goal actually came right after there had been a stoppage of play and i think the germans were almost a little slow to react to this amazing pass coming out of the the play stoppage the other point i want to make is i thought the referee could have done a little bit better in controlling the game early first couple minutes of the game the germans got away with uh what should have been at least fouls maybe even yellow cards and that set a real tone for the rest of the game and i don't know if they gave the the referee job to the ukrainian because of the ukraine aspect stephanie for part from france is the best women's referee in the world by far she's done big time men's games does big time women's games and I am stunned that she did not get the final here. So I, I wish she had been in the final because I don't think we would have seen as physical uh, a, a play like we did for far too long in that game. The, the yellow cards didn't come nearly soon enough. Yeah, and that's always an interesting one for me. Like It's one of those where I, because I've been able to go to more games in person, uh, having a local MLS team, that's such a clear indication early yellows and when the moment at which the referee decides to pull their first yellow is such a huge moment because it completely sets the the tempo for the rest of the game and if if you don't start pulling them then that basically gives carte blanche to players to basically start kicking each other and so when when that doesn't come early and I think you saw both teams frustrated with how the game was refereed at times and it was probably a little bit too much of a figure in the game in my view other games this weekend, uh, the Community Shields, Liverpool beating Man City, um, ended up being 3-1, and I don't know, you don't, you don't want to take too much out of the Community Shield because it's not the Premier League, but whenever these two teams play, it's fun. Uh, I always look forward to it. I love the fact that they neither team backs down. Liverpool does not play with any fear of of Man City. They're going to Liverpool's going to play their game and Man City's going to play their game and it's usually there's a fair number of goals. And um you know, it's a little not totally sharp as you would like it to be, so it still felt a little like a preseason game 
to some extent, but it was still fun to see it happen. And Erling Holland will probably not miss so many chances in the future. It's wild to me how, because there is no other games on, everyone watched this game and immediately piled on to Erling Holland. There's all kinds of, you know, banter jokes about, you know, Norwegian Andy Carroll and all this stuff. Like immediately the jokes go off. And now Erling Holland goes into the season with the reputation of being a profligate goal scorer and not being able to, you know, convert chances, which is kind of idiotic in a way. Like does, does his previous, like he has like a goal a game for Norway, He's done nothing but score goals from the moment we saw him play for Jesse Marsh's RB Salzburg. Like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here with Erling Haaland? Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I do really find interesting how Man City, in some ways, kind of under the radar or transitioning a little bit. Um, I heard a stat on the commentary from Martin Tyler that the only player that was at Manchester City when Pep Guardiola took over that is still there is Kevin De Bruyne. Everyone else has been changed over. And when you let Jesus, Sterling, and Zinchenko go, you're basically saying, all right, we're ready to kind of both be buyers and sellers. And so they've brought players in. Halan, we saw the debut of Julian Alvarez, who did get a goal in this game, albeit wasn't tremendous on his debut. I think probably in a previous era, that's a player that goes on loan. Um, but mm-hmm. given all the sales, uh, he'll, he'll get his chance to play. I think Jack Grealish has a lot of work to do because he, with the sales of two attackers – He's going to be asked to take on a bigger role, and he has not been up for it so far. And I don't think he was up for it in this game either, albeit he'll get a chance to do it against lesser opposition in the first stretch of the season. But either way, from a City point of view, I was kind of fascinated that they weren't really completely up to their game. If you looked at the stats at varying points in the game, they were the better team, but Liverpool always kind of, for me, felt more dangerous. They felt like there certainly are much better defensively. I think that's probably the most interesting part of the dynamic between these two teams, that Liverpool are much more solid from a defensive point of view. When they're in their shape, they are so much stronger. They close down gaps. They make it difficult to play. Whereas Man City, once you beat their forward press, it seems like if they're in a shape that there's so many gaps to be found, Liverpool found them and and, and scored against them. But during league campaigns, Manchester City are just so ruthless with the ball at their feet, so ruthless going forward that they are good enough to win Premier League titles and could potentially win a third consecutive one. But Liverpool, there's been some talk about maybe a step back from them this season, but I think they showed every bit of their Premier League title credentials on this day. By the way, my first reaction to seeing Trent Alexander-Arnold in this game was, Trent is jacked. Has he like <laughs> been... Hmm. Doing the the Leon Goretzka in the offseason or what, what's going on there? <laughs> I I you know what I didn't notice it. I didn't notice it. I'm I'm now kind of kicking myself. I have to go back and watch the tape because uh, no, I, I I did not notice that Trent Alexander Arnold. I think there was another there's another player where like all the all the reporting was wow this guy looks so much bigger now. Um, but no, I, I I did not notice that. But it was just good to see again. Also back are beards. So Klopp's beard is thicker than it was. Uh, I was watching Roy Keane on the studio show has this like mountain man beard. It's like summer. It was like 105 degrees here a week ago. What are these guys doing? James Miller had a bigger beard than he used to. You're still you're still in uh, in vacation mode. Vacation mode is all about like I'm not I'm not clean shaven anymore. By the way, what was the experience like of getting to watch a game with Roy Keane on on, on punditry? 
I'm kind of jealous. We never we never get that experience over here. He wasn't angry. I was expecting him to be angry. Maybe because he's Roy <laughs> Keane. I see these clips every once in a while from stuff he says on UK television. But um, no, he was um, he was almost kind of wise old man mode um, in this game, and uh, so you know. I interviewed Roy Keane once in 2003 when I was over in Manchester doing a a story and he was in a phase when he was, um, I think he had, he said publicly he was starting to see a therapist to deal with his anger stuff. And it was like a a, a very interesting, very subdued interview. I I almost, I was like, I was a little bit like, this isn't the Roy Keane I've heard of. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit of like uh, I mean, obviously uh, Roy Kent and Ted Lasso has some real influences, but you know, like you always expect him to be flipping chairs in the dressing room and you know screaming at people and getting people's faces and injuring people. But I mean, you're not always that guy, and so I feel like I feel like Roy like must get that a lot. It's like, oh, I expected you to be angrier. It has to be kind of like an unfortunate way to live sometimes. Where it's like, be more angry, please. Roy Keane does have a pretty good. Uh... See on Twitter, Instagram, he posts like some sort of like unroy keen like stuff. I think he has fun with it. Um, but uh, I, I don't want to talk too much to give away too much about my Leeds United visit, but it was so awesome seeing and sitting down with Jesse Marsh, Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, talking at length. Um, By the way, for, tr- tremendous, tremendous goals from them in their friendly against yeah. Galliati today. Uh, Brendan Aronson in particular had an assist for their third goal to Patrick Bamford, a little outside of the boot ball, threw ball in behind, and uh, Leeds, Leeds look pretty good in that game. 6-2, I think, maybe in the end. Um, yep. You know, Aronson, I didn't see the game. I saw the highlights of the Trevella assist. Very Michael Laudrup of Brendan Aronson. That's my my new comparison of, of Brendan's game. But um, I just talking to, to Jesse a little bit this week there, like Aronson and Adams have gotten a very good reception inside that team. Um, you know, the, the response from the Leeds team is basically these guys are good and it looks like they're probably going to start very exciting times. I'll be following Leeds United frequently, uh, all season long, but, um, otherwise what else are we going to talk about? Slonina? Yeah. Gabriel Slonina going to Chelsea reported <laughs> $15 million fee from, uh, Fabrizio Romano. This is one that's been, talked about for months now there was the uh you know let him go to real madrid for three cents offer uh that the the agent was pushing for and then it gets done for 15 million dollars now the loan army is not as much of a thing as it used to be so chelsea can't just you know stash him away for four years so this is clearly with intent to at the very least sell on the player soon or use him um he'll be on loan again to chicago fire to finish out this season but that's a really big deal, especially for a Chicago Fire team that I believe have another goalkeeper that's coming through. I think his name is Chris Brady, uh, who's played with uh, the U.S. Youth National Team. So maybe they just produce another one of these. It's a big boon for them because you get a lot of you know allocation money through the door to help build uh, their team. Chicago are certainly an area that should be producing a lot of talented young players. They did it, and now they're getting a bunch of money for it. Like I don't think we should... I think... A year ago, 18 months ago, an MLS player going to Chelsea for $15 million has stopped the presses. And honestly, it's it's sort of a sign of growth that it wasn't really that big, uh, at least sort of in, in my sphere. But it's still a huge move for him. 
and hopefully can, he kicks on and, and continues to have a great career. I think he had clean sheet number 10 of the season at the weekend in Chicago's nil-nil draw against Atlanta. So he's having a decent season, and now he's going to Chelsea. No, I mean, that's a big move. And um, I, I don't feel the same way about this that I did about like Matt Miazga going to Chelsea because you sort of knew that he was going to end up <laughs> somewhere else. And there's um, one machine. You know, um, but... You know, Slanina and also, too, the fact that he's made this decision public that he's going to play for the U.S. instead of Poland. Um, you know, he's made some big calls. It's a big year for him. And he's still a very young guy. He's, what, 17? 18. Um, 18. So um, pretty crazy that uh, the, the talent development is is going this way. But uh, I'm very, like... Curious to see how much of a role he gets with the U.S. national team in the coming years because we're starting to see now more options um, and more U.S. goalkeepers coming to England. It really is a trend now. And, and even you know going to see the guys at Leeds United this week, all of them were in Germany or the German equivalent of Austria. And you know, there's you – know, they, and there, it's funny because like Tyler was asking me, like, are you going to see Chris Richards too? And like, yeah, because Richards just signed in, in England with Crystal Palace this week. And so, um, England in the Premier League and the Championship, there have been some Americans there in recent years, but it it really declined. And now it's kind of going through a, a rebound, a renaissance. Yeah, the Championship in particular, there was a a game with two U.S. internationals in it with Middlesbrough and. Uh, West Bromwich Albion on Saturday, and Zach Steffen had a pretty good game, and all reports are that Daryl DK had a very good game for West Bromwich Albion as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I always look forward to uh, shout out to the Scuffed podcast. They do a, a great thing on on either a Friday afternoon or a Saturday morning where they tweet out they call it the Playbill, which is all the Americans abroad, and you get a full sense of where everyone is going to be. And yeah, there there are a lot of players right now in the championship that are getting minutes that are that are kind of focal points um and the goalkeeping situation in particular i guess in some ways the slonina transfer is not a huge headline because american goalkeepers have always been trusted uh abroad there have always been teams that bring them in and they like them and great athletes and all and all the the traditional stuff going all the way back to tony miola in the 90s but uh i think it's always outfield players that draw us the headline and that's where if you're looking at this one particular club, Chicago Fire, they have a player in Brian Gutierrez who I think is having a pretty solid season. I think he's only 19 years of age, uh, who, who is worth keeping an eye on. And we think about some of this stuff from a global standpoint, just in terms of like, what is MLS's role to play in the global market and sending players over? But I think some of those, some European clubs are like, well, what's each individual club's ability to produce players that are ready for our level. So like, for example, Philadelphia Union and FC Dallas now have the credibility to go into the market and say, here's one of our players. You can trust that he'll be pretty good. Brendan Aronson went over and has been pretty good. And Mark McKenzie's been over and has been pretty good and, and, and so on and so forth. So each club has to prove their own credibility. It was actually interesting that a club like New York City FC couldn't quite get that done with Tati Castellanos. Maybe Castellanos have to go over to Spain and play well before maybe some clubs trust that City Football Group are producing good players in New York as well. So the fact that Chicago have gotten one of these over the line now kind of increases their credibility because they're in a national or international headlines associated with selling a player to Chelsea. And maybe the next time they go into the market, people will trust that Chicago Fire can do this. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's a great point because, you know, Brendan Aronson wasn't at Salzburg that long. 
and obviously he improved at Salzburg, but like they end up selling him for a much larger fee than Salzburg paid for him in part because I don't know if like people thought because he's MLS that they were sure he was going to be what he is. And it's just a very interesting phenomenon. Um, Sacramento uh, Republic has made the U.S. Open Cup final. We had Todd Donovan as an interview guest last week. And they went on penalties against Sporting Kansas City and have a chance now to become the first non-MLS team to win the U.S. Open Cup since 1999. First non-MLS team in the final since 2008, I think. And uh, this is just a continuing really fun story. Yeah. And I really hope that, or I really wish that this game was in Sacramento. This final was in Sacramento right. rather than Orlando. It would have been really cool for an MLS team to go into that stadium and have to beat them on their patch in a final. But either way, the game was really interesting because Sporting Kansas City had more than their fair share of cha- fair share of chances to go and win the game, but they didn't. And so Sacramento take them all the way into penalties. And this could be a really huge moment for American soccer. Anytime this happens, there are always the renewed calls. I saw Rodrigo Lopez, who, pay, who plays for Sacramento, the renewed calls for promotion and relegation and the chance for some of these teams to have a real go at Major League Soccer. It goes again, a chance for USL representation in the CONCACAF Champions League, which would be enormous for this league that has done so much from a positive point of view to grow as a second-tier league. I mean... I don't think we've even talked about. I believe a USL club sold a player for more than a million dollars to 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 Europe. I, I forget who. I, I can look at up here as we talk. But USL is doing a ton to grow the infrastructure of this country, covering areas of the country that uh, were not previously. Uh, you know, in terms of from a geographical standpoint, there's so much of this country to scout, look for players, and now you you have clubs in so many more markets. You think about markets that could absolutely use one. Think of a city like Baltimore that doesn't have uh, a, a, a professional soccer team. USL has done so much, and so to have their moment in the sun here in a cup final, if they can go and win it, participate in the Champions League, it'd be a huge step forward and hopefully continues to grow that league because some of the MLS 2 teams that frankly help provide it some stability are now being phased out moving into MLS Next Pro. So this league is going to stand on its own and it's got enough good clubs to do it. And hopefully it's not just the carrot of Major League Soccer that allows some of these clubs to grow even further, their achievements of their own and winning league titles and selling players either to MLS or to Europe or to wherever um, that can help grow that league. And that's why this is such a huge story. Yeah. And also to the added element that Literally, MLS announced that Sacramento was going to be in the league, and there was all this fanfare. Ron Burkle pulls out, and now I think it's pretty unlikely that they're going to end up in MLS. And so, not impossible, but unlikely. Seems like Vegas is going to get the thirtieth spot. Right. If you think if you think about the, those West Coast markets, I mean, San Diego is another one. There, there's mm-hmm. a new stadium being built on San Diego State's uh, patch that you know is is another is another shout to. To, to get another major league soccer team. So, and even Phoenix in some respects, you think about what they've done in USL and their potential as, as, as a market, they're a bigger market than Sacramento. Um, you feel like that'd be a good market for soccer. If they can get the right owner, uh, they, they seem like they're a well-run club in Phoenix rising. So there are probably three West coast teams that you'd probably pick over Sacramento, which is harsh because Sacramento and was one of the originals to do this at USL level, draw yeah. big crowds and get mainstream media attention and, you know, win things that, you know, get galvanized a community behind a soccer team that wasn't an MLS team. And yet they just haven't been able to find 
unfortunately, that's just how the system works. The rich person that can get them to the next level. Um, but maybe they can uh, reestablish themselves in the minds of American soccer powers by winning a trophy against a bunch of MLS teams who have beaten five five MLS teams, I believe, on their way to winning the final if they can do it in Orlando in September. Yeah, very impressive run. Can't wait for the final. I think that tournament is getting bigger and bigger every year, as it should be. Chris, thanks as always. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Mm-hmm.